0: Good afternoon. This is Rich Nass, Executive Vice President with Open Systems Media and leader of the Embedded Computing Design franchise. I'm here with Brandon Lewis, Editor in Chief of Embedded Computing Design for our weekly Embedded Insiders. Hello, Brandon.
1: Hey, how you doing, Rich? I thought you changed your name from Rich Nass to Patient Zero. You sick?
0: Uh, I'm okay. Uh, I, I do appreciate your concern, but you know we have to plow through the uh, the world of technology. Never stops. So I'm the never show sleep. must go on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what's up for today? Uh, well, first I want to hear about what's up with last week. I tried to get in touch with you a few times, and you did not return my calls. Where were you last week?
1: Well, actually, last week I was on vacation in Scotland, uh, where my wife's family hails from. So had some whiskey, played some golf, you know. But the week before that, I was actually in Germany um, at a presser just south of munich and um, it was actually put on by our friends over at Publitech. it was uh, about 10 companies a lot of interesting presentations over the course of a couple of days and uh, learned a lot of stuff met a lot of good people so it was a lot of fun
0: so what was the one most interesting thing that you learned with respect to
1: work well um the most interesting thing let's let's put it in a different way the most Common theme that was running through all of the presentations, and I actually wrote a column about this. It's up on the website at www. computingcom dot com called "The End of Embedded Engineering as We Know It." It seems like a lot of uh, organizations now are worried about the amount of engineering talent that they that's out there that's available. And by engineering talent, I mean specifically double uh, E's electronics engineers. So it appears that not just in the U.S. anymore, but uh, even in traditional uh, hotspots internationally like Eastern Europe and uh, the Far East. Um, engineers are either moving into different types of engineering or, or maybe different fields altogether. So um, they're feeling a little bit of a crunch on the number of double E's that are out there. And it has some significant implications, obviously, on our industry. You know, some people are... Um, maybe shifting their business a little bit to focus on different areas that they can service, like uh, manufacturing, for example, and then maybe some services type stuff a little bit more than doing actual a lot of in-house design. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, there are companies like Silicon Labs who are taking the approach of, all right, well, we'll develop a black box embedded engineering uh, embedded solutions and then offer those to software to software developers, and you know they can just come in and uh, API into the entire system, and, and uh, you know, off, they're go- off they go. They don't need to know anything about the underlying hardware or firmware or any of that stuff, and, you know, that um, depends on what side of the fence you're on. Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously not a great thing um, for the embedded uh, community that when you black box stuff, it tends to uh, hamper innovation because the people who are using the equipment don't really know what's going on down there, but, you know, we'll see. Time will tell.
0: Okay, you covered a lot of ground there. Uh, I I was going to circle back to where you started with, but I think I want to circle back to where you ended with. um, Mm. About the lack of innovation. Um, Mm. Brings up a point that I wanted to discuss with you that has to do with some of these form factors that just seem to not be going away. Um, There are things like in some of the spaces industrial military for instance that are are based on technology that goes back 30 years and it's you know there's obviously been updates to them but um these things just um are with us for a long long time longer than they should any any comment on that
1: uh it's really interesting you know the, i i actually started cutting my teeth in this industry on some of the standards that we have, like uh, PC-104, for example, advanced TCA, compact PCI, and these have been around for a long, long time. Um, You know, part of it is the standardization aspect of it, but the other part of it is obviously that they're able to evolve and uh, integrate some of the new technologies because they're flexible enough. But um, is there anybody that you think would be able to give us a little bit deeper insight than I can ever offer?
0: Actually, I... uh... it upon myself to bring in a guest, who I, I guess is unbeknownst to you. I asked Jonathan Miller, who's the, the founder and CEO of Diamond Systems, Diamond Systems, to join us, because he he lives and breathes this stuff every day about these older architectures and how do we maintain them and make sure that they're up to date. Uh, are you with us, Jonathan?
2: Uh, hello, here I am. Wonderful.
0: Uh, I. I hope you've been following along the discussion we, we've been having about these older architectures being around for a while. Um, first of all, is it, is it true, or are we still basing uh, new designs on technologies that are running 30 years old, and, and if so, why?
2: Well, um, uh, the quick answer is yes, but first let me please preface that by saying that, um, please let it not be um, uh, uh, believed that diamonds... Or myself are totally wedded to ancient architectures like PC 104. <laughs> uh, we certainly have a wide range of technologies and solutions that we offer customers based upon their needs. Um, however, do we do we recognize the value of PC. <laughs> okay, thank you. Although we do, of course, recognize the value of PC 104 and have been with it since its inception in around 1992, and uh, we continue to maintain and extend the product life, uh, the product um, um, availability, um, because of our customers who are still using it. Um, I guess that the the main thing I would say is that a lot of people in our our industry have very, very long life applications. And so when they design something, they want to stick with it forever and ever. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So in that regard, PC-104 uh, has kind of an extended lifeline, just for that simple fact right there.
0: But aren't there lots of
2: examples
1: if... Sorry, go ahead, Rich.
0: Aren't there lots of examples whereby if you adopted a new technology, it would be obviously a performance gain, but it it would also be a significant cost gain? or cost reduction?
2: Uh, um, maybe. I, I think that conversation probably is changing a lot these days with the introduction of newer um, SOC and SOMs and things like that and ARM technology. So um, there's, there are definitely some uh, cost-competitive and size-competitive solutions to PC-104. But remember, it has an amazing package of value, of benefits. Uh, first of all, it is um, off the shelf. The biggest benefit of PC-104 is that you don't have to design anything at all. And there are a lot of customers that don't want to do any electronic design. They want to focus exclusively on their unique added value in the marketplace, and so an off-the-shelf solution is perfect for them. Um, and, and secondly, it's re- relatively small size, lightweight compared to other technologies that existed when it came out, and is still competitive in that regard today. And also, it's extremely rugged, um, which is great for vehicle applications. So, okay. you know, it doesn't—it doesn't—it's maybe a long list of features or benefits, but there are a lot of applications in industrial and military markets uh, that need those benefits. And so, P. One hundred four still is uh, finds a sweet spot in the market.
0: I don't want to pick on any so, one particular architecture, though, but, I mean, this is, this is across the board. We've been using VME for better than 30 years. The ISA bus is still around,
2: right, you know? I mean, right, it exactly.
0: is, it's obviously not just PC-104.
2: That's correct, right. Um, and, and to be honest, I'm not an expert in VME and the larger um, card cage type of form factors, so I wouldn't really be able to comment too much, although I do agree with the trends. Uh, the trend is, is to hold on to things forever and ever, like serial ports, right? I mean, RS two three two has been around since 1950 or something, uh, but it's still popular today because it's low cost and simple and it works.
1: Okay. So, do you think that a lot of these, a lot of the customers that are using these architectures, Jonathan, are just not interested in new capabilities that that, that come to the market? You know, we hear a lot of buzz around. You know, five years ago, around everybody was going to IoT. Well, is everybody really going to IOT because if you're just sticking with the same technology uh, that you've had thirty years ago, you you may not be able to you know take advantage of some of those capabilities, or is it that the um, architectures are able to be extended to support some of those capabilities um, while still remaining in the form factor and not having to go into a design retrofit um, wow that's a, that's a, a very insightful question um, let
2: me let me uh, first say that I believe IOt um, uh, is more of an application. Than, than a you know, it's not a form factor. Really, it's an application that can be built using many different uh, uh, ingredients or components. So, mm-hmm. and I think the IoT we're going to see it primarily in deeply embedded things like sensors, uh, home automation, factory automation, stuff like that, where it's like it's like a very small, low-cost type of things with mesh networks. It's not really kind of uh, product automation. When we think of the traditional embedded system, or at least the way I learned about it and the way that I live it, uh, it's typically one one device doing something and it needs a computer to help it do that thing. And maybe it's connected to the Internet for maintenance or monitoring or something like that. And in that sense, it could use IoT. Um, but IoT is that extra layer of application on top of the underlying um, you know, uh, uh, functional technology there.
1: So then, then how are the standards then able this? to address?
2: Yeah how are the
1: standards able to so how are the sta- standards able to address um some of those requirements for slower moving applications that may want to um integrate maybe let's not call it IoT let's just say some more comprehensive connectivity or com- or communications or security so for that matter So that's where-
2: that, that's where the uh, expandability comes into play, right? I mean, as long as you've got expansion sockets on your, on your platform, then you're able to uh, uh, adopt new technologies that can a- enable you to meet new application needs. So PC-104 was great because it had the ISA bus and PCI bus and so on, and people could design I.O. cards that use those buses uh, and those connectors to provide additional functionality. Well, today the equivalent is being done with things like Minicard and M.2. And so people are now designing Minicards uh, not just for Wi-Fi, but also for all kinds of I/O, serial, Ethernet, data acquisition, CAN, all kinds of things like that, right? Um, Bluetooth, mesh networks, things like that, and even M. Two is being used for I/O um, as well. So I think that's kind of the way I see it. That those those uh, those mezzanines are being used to provide that connectivity people are looking for for the new applications. Very good. Um, so you know, I think one of, one thing. Of like, sorry, good. Oh, sorry one is the, one is like the the basic functional platform that provides the basic operational needs you need and then the other thing is the connectivity on top of it which will be provided by those sockets very good
1: so um you know PC104 as far as i'm concerned has been uh, relatively flat in terms of uh you know the global market for a while is is there going to be is there any you know end inside or are people uh, what are what are people using now rather than adopting PC one hundred four and new designs, or or is, does PC one hundred four still um, have new design wins? Um, for sure, we see a lot of new design wins uh, for the
2: reasons I mentioned earlier. Uh, I would say that maybe um, well, there's definitely a lot of competition today in the market, and certainly the market's growing and new technologies is coming in to fit uh, the the very wide heterogeneous needs of the market. Um, but it definitely it definitely serves the needs the needs of customers that are looking for those sets of benefits that it offers. And we see new design wins all the time. Although, of course, yes, uh, I see a, a lot of growth in the uh, comm-based SVC market today. I think that comms are really a, a, key, um, a key driving force in the market today, and have really kind of stolen the spotlight. The, the benefit of comms, of course, is that you have the same interchangeability of PC-104. Um, uh, but actually, all the modules are exactly the same, whereas on PC-104, each CPU board is different. So changing a CPU board from one vendor to another uh, requires a lot of redesign with Com Express or other comms, you know, Q7 and so on, uh, you don't have to do any of that. It's basically exactly the same physical form factor. So the, the uh, upgrade and lifecycle extension are much, much easier. The problem with comms up until recently was that it required custom design, and that's one of the key benefits of PC-104. And nowadays, though, with the um, advent of off-the-shelf comm carrier boards from many companies, including Diamond, uh, and along with minicards and M.2, uh, you can now start building uh, off-the-shelf uh, solutions just like you can with PC 104. So I think that there's a bright future still for Com Express, especially, and I think that will only continue to happen, to grow, and become a greater threat to PC 104 over time.
1: Interesting and stuff. With those, I got one one last question, uh, Rich, because the, the the off-the-shelf uh, carrier boards is pretty interesting. You know, when when Coms first came to market, um, you know, you're exactly right, Jonathan, that the the carrier board was usually custom designed and and it, it sort of, uh, you know, removed, removed some value. Um, but when you're talking about delivering an off-the-shelf carrier board now, what are some of the interfaces that you guys are designing in? Do you still supporting some, you know, older type of interfaces? Or do they tend now to be more of the PCIs and the uh, PCIEs and, um, and the Ethernet interfaces and, you know, what have you?
2: Well, you've got another home run there with that question. Um, there are a lot of issues and challenges in designing an off-the-shelf carrier board uh, because of the impact that it can have on the processor's BIOS. So mm-hmm. the best thing we've learned is to stay away from things like LPC, where you have a lot of BIOS customization effort. The best thing is to go for the plug-and-play uh, interfaces like PCI Express, um, uh, and maybe USB, and things like that. So that, uh, to a lesser extent, I squared C, which is not too difficult to use, and in that sense, uh, it makes it much easier for the for the carrier to be. Um, uh, you know, usable by many different CPUs without customization. I mean, the biggest pain point we've had has been BIOS customization when we wed a carrier to, mm-hmm. a, to a module. Very <clears throat> yeah, good. So, yeah. Okay.
0: Uh, well, I want to thank you, Jonathan. Uh, that was Jonathan Miller. He's the founder and CEO of of Diamond Systems. Hey, Brandon. For fifty cents. When was the USB spec first released?
1: Um, if it was before 2000, I don't remember.
0: Uh. <laughs> Jonathan?
2: Hi there. Uh, I have no idea.
0: Okay. Okay. 1995 is, is when the spec, and uh, you owe me 50 cents, Brandon. Okay. Uh, that wraps up <laughs> this week's Embedded Insiders. That was Brandon Lewis, who I guess was born in the year 2000, Uh, and I'm Rich Nash. Uh, We're both with Embedded Computing Design. Have a great day, guys.
1: You too, Rich.